Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, and welcome to episode 102 of The Science of Motherhood. I am your host, Dr. Renee White. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have got a part two from a guest, Anya Dunham. If you haven't listened to her on part one from episode 96, please jump back over to there. Far out, she is one interesting cat. This is so good. Anya is totally up my alley when it comes to full-on research. Like, she is just amazing. And we are going to be diving into science-based parenting, what that is, how it works, all the things. But before we jump into that episode, of course, I wanted to mention Merry Christmas. I hope you all had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas with friends and family and all your loved ones. I also acknowledge the fact that this can be a really challenging time for people, you know, particularly those who are estranged from their families. It can be a really, really difficult time. So be kind to one another, be kind to yourself. And it is it is sometimes just the little things. So I know we get caught up at this time of the year with the chaos that can unfold and families come together and it can be a really, really challenging time to navigate boundaries and relationships and things like that. If boundaries and relationships are things that you're kind of struggling with at the moment we've got some amazing people that we have interviewed previously on this podcast um just to name a few dr rebecca ray on episode 90 around how to handle difficult conversations during motherhood that is an absolute perler to listen to if you're thinking about that if you're struggling with boundaries per se again beck spoke on episode 78 about that And then I think also it would be remiss of us not to talk about, you know, how difficult it can be to ask for help at this time of the year. We've got our kids on school holidays and I, for one, know that it can be really, really challenging to ask for help and it's overwhelming. But if you are struggling in that department, I highly recommend jumping back into episode 82 with Katie Parker. She is a doula, a counsellor, specifically looking at why it is so hard for us to ask for help. And I think those conversations might be really, really valuable for you to listen to if that's something that you are combating at the moment. So, but apart from that, I hope you're having a beautiful time with your friends and family. I hope you're getting some rest time as well. Make sure that we carve out rest Self-care is very, very important, particularly at this time of the year, because we are all burnt out. Our children are burnt out. We are burnt out. Deep breaths. (laughs) Okay, let's jump into today's episode. As I said, we have the beautiful Anya Dunham in part two, 
and we are talking about what science-based parenting is now for those who haven't gone back over to episode 96 a quick little sneak peek about Anya she is a research scientist she's a mum of three she's got a PhD so she's like yeah, she's Dr. Dunham. <laughs> she's got a PhD in biology and she studies ecology, which for all those playing at home is the way living things relate to one another and interact within their environment. So it is so, it's what I love. It's not just talking about things in like insular form. So think about things like in a test tube when you've got one reaction, but then we're not taking into account all around us or the entire environment. So ecology is a beautiful demonstration of how we take biology and look at it in a very holistic kind of perspective. She's got an award-winning book called Baby Ecology um, where she's looked at child development research through the lens of her scientific field to help parents create physical and emotional environments in their homes that work best for their unique babies. And that is something that we dive into quite deeply today we're going to be talking about her personal journey how she moved from you know being a biologist to really kind of diving in and writing her book the extent of her research which is huge so so huge like this woman has put her heart soul sweat blood and tears into this um hat off to her like it's taken her a really long time we are looking at different parenting philosophies, how science is integrated, um, you know, within that. And then we look at things like what, although our children are very different, Anya has kind of identified these universal elements that are required for nurturing our babies. And so we look at those elements and how they can kind of be interwoven with our own cultural backgrounds and parenting philosophies. And then, you know, we talk about how we can <laughs> adapt all of that to our everyday lives, um, particularly with the noise around us from social media and society. So I really hope that you enjoy this podcast. If you do, please feel free to um, jump into your podcast platform Give us a little rating. We'd love five stars. That would be amazing. And it's super, super important to us because the more people that put ratings in or write a little review means that we get more exposure. So if you are really loving this podcast, please feel free to share us, leave a review, leave some stars, and hopefully we can continue to educate and empower other families across the world with our beautiful episodes. All right, let's jump into our discussion with Anya Dunham. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Anya, how are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I am splendid. First of all, thank you so much for coming back onto the pod. Everyone would have heard in the introduction that we spoke on episode 96 about intuition and how that works and from your perspective, I guess, as a research scientist. And today we are going to dive in to science-based parenting, which I find fascinating. You wrote a really awesome article on it and we're going to have a look at that in like 
a second. But for those who haven't caught up on episode 96, I highly recommend you jump back in there. But for those who just want to settle into this episode, can you just give us a really brief background on yourself and how you kind of came to this area? Of course. Yes. Thank you, Renee. So um, my name is Anya Dunham and I am a research scientist, a biologist um, in my day job. Um, I study ecology, which is the science of sort of, it's a branch of biology that looks at how living things interact with one another and their environment. And so what I did when I became a mom is I took my scientific background and my knowledge of ecology and I applied it to child development. So I looked at all the studies on babies first year through the lens of my research field to see what do babies need and how can we provide that in our homes and in our families. And so that's how uh, my book, Baby Ecology, was born. I'm also a mom of three young kids. And um, yeah, I think that's that's sort of uh, the main things about me. <laughs> that's you, you in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I think we spoke probably a bit more in detail around your journey that led you from, I guess, being a biologist to delving into this kind of science-based parenting and understanding more about it and then your book baby ecology right because it was kind of like this you know filling the gap like you saw this kind of huge opportunity where like I always say there's probably be a, a little fluff on the internet that you want to kind of just park and shelf so what did that book writing experience look like for you yeah, so um, I basically wrote the book that I wished I had as a new mom mm-hmm. when my first daughter was born 12 years ago. It just felt like I was looking for a resource that I could trust and something that would give me sort of a, a an overview of everything of everything that I wanted to know in the way that I could trust and and believe and also apply to my sort of day-to-day life to -to day-to-day baby care. And I wanted it all in one place in sort of a holistic, helpful way. And then I just couldn't find it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I started looking at all the the sources, the original sources of knowledge. And I went and I read hundreds of studies and I tried to separate ones that were maybe not that relevant for parents because they weren't they didn't really tell us about sort of babies in general. Like they would tell us something very, very specific about a very, very specific setting and a very, very specific question and often wouldn't be that helpful. And Mm -hmm. so I tried to separate those out, kind of wearing my ecologist hat and look at studies that tell us what do babies need from their environment and from us people in their lives. And it was a really long journey. It took me, like I'm afraid to say, it took me 10 years to do to do this uh, to do this work and because it was done sort of when the rest of my family was asleep and I would uh, you know dive into the into the science and it was a really, really fun project too. It was almost like it's a bit strange to say, but it was like self-care. It was a form of self-care to do this because that's where my mind and my heart could fully intersect. Mm. And um, so that's how uh, my book was finally finished a couple of years ago and published last year. That is amazing. And I think I read in the article that you read over 800 papers to like put this book together. And 
And I think it's really interesting that you touched on the fact that you kind of separated out those articles which were very like niche, which I find, and I think this is going to be really valuable for the listeners because I see this time and time again, people will, you know, put together a study and it will be around a particular question for a particular subgroup, for a particular age group. And like, it's very, very niche. And more often than not, and I'd love your comments on this, we see people just picking and choosing whatever they want to. And then just, it's like a really thick brush. It's like all toddlers need X or only babies do this in, you know, you know, something to do with sleep, I find, is always controversial. How, if, I, I would love for you to, like, if you can, articulate to parents, if they're looking at something, how can people discern the difference between fact and fiction? Like, looking at a paper, what should someone look at? You know, what are the finer details that we should be looking for to go, mm, no, this doesn't actually apply to me and my situation and my family. So I'm just going to cast that aside. How does that look for you? Yeah, you know, this is such a good question and such a tricky one, right? Because just as you said, there are situations where the paper itself it was done correctly and it's solid in the sense that they did answer this study question that they had and they applied perhaps a rigorous statistical analysis and everything was done correctly but it applies to such a narrow situation mm. that it's not really that relevant for, for a lot of people. But then what happens is I think sometimes media and social media in particular takes that message because sometimes these research studies that do come with a very particular result, and but then mm. it gets amplified and often kind of misinterpreted in the media. And then mm. it gets applied across the board. And yeah. we often look at it and we go, oh, it looks like that's what I should be doing or I should not be doing. But actually, the, the right thing to do would be to go and look at that ex at the actual study and see, is that what it actually says? Mm. Or was that a very, very narrow slice that this study yeah. addressed? Yeah. So I think that's one example. Then there's other examples when the study actually wasn't done that well. And it maybe it's very, very small, uh, but the conclusions were more sort of far-reaching than the results mm. would, would, would sort of justify. And so those are other examples. Like sometimes it's a very, very small study also on a not a very diverse group of families. And so again, it would only apply to, to possibly not even that small group because it was just such a small preliminary piece of work. So there is all that. Sometimes the abstract, the summary of the study doesn't actually convey what's in the study very well. And so again, I think sometimes what happens is we just look at that summary and we get all worried and and then when we look at the whole study, which isn't always available, sometimes it's behind a paywall and it's difficult to assess, then we go in there and it's like, oh, actually, the whole point was not quite what I thought. So that happens as well. And so, you know, you mentioned I looked at 800 studies. I, I scanned sort of many, many more. And the 800, I actually read very, very carefully from start to finish just to be sure that what I'm getting out of this work was what the authors meant and that it did apply to human babies in general 
So I think there is sort of a lot that we can do to look at to look at the particular at the at the papers themselves, but also we don't always have the time, right? Like yes. it's not always possible for us to to look at hundreds of studies or even a dozen or even one study in on a particular topic. And so I think it makes sense that we would turn to experts who have done the work for us, who have looked at and did hopefully a deep enough and broad enough dive into the research and then present it to us. But I think it's also very challenging to find those voices that we trust and that have done a really good and helpful helpful work for us. Um, mm. So that's that. I think that's a whole sort of separate challenge as well. Oh, absolutely. And just as you were saying that, like, it, it kind of almost reminded me. So one of the things that we offer our families and makes it's very unique to our doula village here in Australia is that because of my science background, and I think you'll probably, you know, attest to this, we're trained as individuals to critically anal- analyse these papers and to be able to assess whether the methodology is sound and, you know, what is significant here and have have they actually gone too far in their conclusions? One of the things that I offer is a research brief. So our families can get in contact with me and ask me a curly question that, as you say, like it's so hard to kind of do that big jump into the literature and have the time for it. But we've had some amazing questions sent through. And it's, as you say, like it's around, you know, your mental bandwidth as well. Like, God, you don't have time. <laughs> how, am I, how do I critically analyze these things? Like it's it's really, really difficult to do. But I wonder during your analysis, were there any key findings or research that you thought in yourself, wow, that's surprising. Or like, was there anything else that like really stood out? Like maybe it was quite impactful and maybe it's not really spoken about because we talk about the fact that from bench to bedside, we call it, you know, it takes 10 to 15 years for information to actually make it to the public. Are there things that you read that you thought, oh my goodness, I wish more people knew about that? Oh, there was quite a few. I would say, yeah, definitely quite a few. And it's, it's even hard to pick, to pick just one <laughs> thing. Uh, but first, I want to say what an amazing resource you are. It's your communities. It's, it's an incredible, incredible thing because, uh, yeah, I think it's just so fantastic when we first have our babies to have someone be able to sort of show you the, the lay of the land in that way. If you, um, as we talked about in our last, uh, last time, when you expected that maternal instinct to kick in and then you realize, oh my goodness, I don't, I actually don't know. And to have someone help you with the research, I think that's what a fantastic opportunity for, for moms yeah. and, and dads and everybody else. But yes, in terms of surprising findings that I think could be better known, I think there are a lot around sleep, mm. just the biology of sleep and how sleep develops. I think really helps us adjust our expectations and get out of that 
kind of mode that we must teach our babies to sleep. Mm-hmm. I think that's that was one thing. Another another example that I can think of, and what's interesting with this one, is that it's not new research. In fact, the research was done back in the 1930s, but um, it's the research around children's feeding and how if you offer children a variety of food, how they would actually, if they retain the ability to listen to their body and to listen to their own hunger and fullness cues, how they're able to essentially choose their own diets that are perfect for them. And this research was done by Clara Davies back in the 30s and her team. And it was never to be repeated, which is actually a good thing because it was done in an orphanage. And so they had at the time they did, they had a full control over the children's diets and the children were offered 36 of the same food items every day from the age of six months to six years old. And the researchers would record what exactly did they choose to eat when they had no pressure and no sort of adult influence. But what was amazing is that they all grew healthy, even children who had a tough start in life. But I think what we can learn from that and what many, many studies have shown since is that uh, we actually can apply this knowledge to to how we start solids with our babies in that we help them trust themselves and we trust Mm -hmm. them and trust their bodies to, to know what they need most. And so, of course, we're not going to offer them 36 items in in little Petri dishes (laughs) at every, (laughs) every meal, thank goodness, but, but we can really, it sort of removes a lot of the worry around mm-hmm. um, meal times, and that if we offer them healthy choices, they will know what they need. And and so our our role is to offer them those choices, and their role is to 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 take what they need. And I think this sort of applies to almost everything. Honestly, when I feel when you look at the science of baby's first chair, I felt that what science tells us is that our role is to create the best environment. And then our babies take out of that range of options, they take what they need most. Just as you were saying that, it reminded me of a a saying that my husband's grandma said to my husband's mum. So my husband was born three months premature. So it was quite a traumatic experience in and of itself. And his nan was uh, a nurse. And so, she, you know, even though she kind of had that kind of medical side, she obviously still had this kind of very holistic, motherly, maternal side. And, and she apparently said to her daughter, who had just had a three-month prem baby, your job now is to make him as independent as possible so that he does not need you anymore. And you know, saying that, I think saying that to a mom, you're like, oh my God, how? Like he needs me, he's three months prem. But also I think she had, you know, this knowledge of like, you need to let him go as quickly as you possibly can because children thrive through being independent and making their own choices and and things like that. Like I think I read in one of Dan Siegel's books that, you know, our our job is to empower our children to be as independent and in fact you know what do they call them the t 
terrible twos and the troublesome threes and what have you. They've just got this really horrible connotation. But in fact, that is actually what our children should be doing. They should be pushing boundaries and rebelling to an extent in a really respectful way because they are trying to kind of garner where is the boundary here? How am I going to be independent from my family? So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. It's like, you know, how we know that like our babies are born a bit early, right? Or because Mm. um, we probably meant to be pregnant longer, but as humans, like we we have to give birth to babies when they're quite you know, not quite, uh, they have a lot of development still ahead of them, but Mm -hmm. that um, in some ways that creates this very unique situation where they're under our care so much longer than, you know, animal babies. Um, And so that they can test, sort of test the boundaries, they can kind of grow their wings in this protected environment where we're right there and we offer our love and our support, but we also offer them the space to kind of test, develop, and then test their strength, which I think mm. is a pretty, pretty cool way of looking at it. Like we were right there, we yes. set it up for them, and then we we watch them, we observe them. We talked a bit about sort of the power of observing our kids and what they need when we talked about um, intuition, about developing our intuition. And I think sort of watching them and seeing what they're ready for, what they're working on, and what maybe is hard for them is sort of also helps us get to know who they are as people and what they like what sort of support they need from us. I quite like the term scaffolding, you know, when we sort of provide just the right support mm-hmm. at just the right time, but not too much of it so that they can feel um feel their own strength. Mm, yes, I think that's incredibly important. Giving them empowering them to know that essentially they can reach for the stars but equally knowing that if they fall, like we're going to be right there for them when that happens and that's going to be okay to make mistakes and quote unquote fail (laughs) at reaching for the stars. No, I really love that. In your article, you discussed a concept called Optimal Nurturing Environment or the acronym ONE. Can you explain what that actually means and I guess how parents can apply this concept to their caregiving practices? Um, Yeah. So, you know, when I looked at all these hundreds of studies um, through the lens of my, my research field, ecology, and I tried to find those studies that really tell us a lot about what babies need from their environment, from us, their caregivers, their parents, um, and their physical environment as well. What I saw, which was very empowering actually, was that there wasn't sort of a one-size-fits-all approach in almost any area of baby care. What I saw was quite a range of good options. And I thought for a while, what would I call that range? Because, you know, I could, I imagine that almost as this field of choices, mm-hmm. um, a field of possibilities um, that are all good but not all of them are going to fit a particular family or a particular baby. And so I thought of it as the optimal nurturing environment or the one for short, but it's not just one thing, it's a range of possibilities. And so I imagined it sort of as a circle from which every family can choose 
what works best for them and their baby based on their baby's temperaments, needs, age, circumstances, their family um, situation at the moment. And that's when they would use their intuition. So their knowledge of their unique baby. So that the one, um, the optimal nurturing environment sort of tells us what do babies need in general, like most babies of this age in relation to this particular parenting question. And then we are free to choose the option that we want um, and we think will work best for our babies. And then we can change course as well. So when things change, which they do so often like during baby's first mm -hmm. year and beyond, because I think this concept can also be applied beyond um, that first year. We we change, we'll, we'll look again and, and we choose something else. Um, but I guess the hard part there is understanding where that optimal nurturing environment is in relation to that parenting question that we have, because we don't want to kind of fall outside of it too much, which some parenting approaches that sometimes we hear, sometimes they straddle it. Some of it is good and some of it really isn't supported by science. Other times, certain things fall, might fall completely outside it. Um, things like, you know, one example that comes to mind is scheduled breastfeeding, like feeding yeah. uh, every three hours or every four hours and things like that, right? Like we now know that that's not supported by science, but there was a time when that was a very, very common advice or what? starting you, solids. I was going to say, did you, did you come across what, where that, originated from because yeah it kind of it it baffles me <laughs> and, and I I have to say that when when I gave birth I luckily didn't receive any of that type of information but it was really interesting because when I went to my mother's group a lot of other mums received that information and I had always kind of taken the approach of you know feed on demand and that was that was kind of all I knew, maybe because I didn't do a lot of research <laughs> about it at all. But I remember thinking to myself, I was I was kind of sitting in a circle in mother's group and someone was like, oh, you know, yep, it's nearly four hours, got the baby, put baby to breast. And I remember actually feeling quite panicked, thinking, oh my God, am I underfeeding my baby? should I be feeding them every four hours? Like what's going on? Like I don't think my daughter ever went <laughs> longer than four hours anyway. I had a very chubby baby. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I do remember second-guessing myself going, oh, my God, I have, I have missed out on some critical piece of information. And then I went into like this spiral of like, what else have I missed? Is there something else that I've missed? And maybe just thinking about it on like reflection, maybe that's where I became quite hypersensitive to other things like sleep. Like I remember having a conversation with someone and I had, again, I was just like very go with the flow at the beginning. Obviously my daughter was cat napping as they call it you know those 40 45 minute cycles and I was just kind of like going with it like yeah it was kind of exhausting but I was going with it and then someone in my mother's group said oh no you better fix that and I was like what 
and they were like, oh, no, you have to fix that. They don't understand how to sleep. You need to teach them. And I went into a crash dive scenario where I was like, my baby's broken. Oh, my God. I'm supposed to be feeding her every four hours. This eat, what is it? Um, Eat, feed, sleep or play or whatever the thing is that everyone gets told. Where does this come from, Anya? Did you? I'm so curious to know, like, who started this? Who needs, you know, who needs to be told? Stop. <laughs> this is such a good question. And, you know, I don't have the answer from science because, you know, going back to that example of um, starting solids, mm. back way back in the 1930s, we knew that children take what they need. And I right. think there is a lot there's a lot of breastfeeding knowledge as well that so we should have known all along that babies should be fed on demand because their bodies know best and then that the mom and, and the baby's body is is the same it sort of creates this ecosystem. And so I honestly don't think that that came from science. I think this mm. must have been some sort of a thing where Someone somewhere thought that that would be convenient or helpful to the the families and the society, which I actually don't think it is because I think your example is a great one where all it does is create stress. And of course, it's just not the best for the baby uh, biologically, but it Mm. also creates a lot of stress and anxiety in parents thinking like, I guess I'm not doing the right thing because this isn't even working. Like my baby's already hungry or, you know, my baby woke up after 45 minutes and how am I supposed, because it's their sleep cycle and how am I supposed to teach them (laughs) and um, things like that. Right. And, and I think that's also like these examples you had are also really good examples of sort of what to look for in terms of red flags in parenting mm. advice, because I think, you know, um, I get one obvious example is when someone says, well, this is science-based, but they cannot show you the science. Like they're just, re- in reality, it's just someone's opinion that's been shared as um, mm. gospel and good advice. But there's another example where I think it's even more, it's more, it's trickier. It's, a, it's when they actually do produce some science to back it up. Um, And so it seems like this advice is very science-based, but Mm -hmm. I think one thing to look for is when it's very, very specific and Mm -hmm. very prescriptive, like babies should sleep two hours or, you know, babies should feed every three hours on the dot. And usually in looking into the science, what I see is that that's almost never the case. Science always is much more nuanced and has more of that range of options. It's almost never, apart from, you know, specific medical or safety related questions where like there is a black and white and we should, we obviously should always have the properly installed car seat, right? Like that example, like we should never drive without one. Like that's kind of obvious, right? Yeah. When it comes to other things, especially like development and play and and sleep and feeding, there's always like there's always nuance. Like it's never black and white like this. And so yeah. when we hear a par- someone who sounds like an expert give us like this very very specific, like yeah, you know, feed like in three hours you got to start like playing with them and you know maybe stop yes. you know stop the nap or start the nap things like that. It's usually yeah. not science based and whatever science has been 
brought into that probably is cherry picked. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think any any advice that appears that you're treating your child like a robot probably mm-hmm. needs to be questioned. Yeah, there seems to be that human element missing from it. Yeah, <laughs> I remember I remember slipping down into that rabbit hole of like sleep advice and it, we ended up getting a sleep consultant because I was convinced that my baby was broken. And the schedule that we received was so incredibly strict. And I remember it just caused so much anxiety. And look, if that floats your boat, then that floats your boat. But it did not work for us. Like it was so prescriptive, as you said, like, you know, this was when my daughter was um, starting solids and it was so clear cut, like in in bold, all caps letters, it's like, do not let your child sit, sit in the in the high chair for longer than 30 minutes. And so I would be setting a timer thinking like, because my brain was just going to explode. I'm like, oh my God, what happens after 30 minutes? <laughs> like I was just so, so into in like into this thing thinking, oh my God, okay, I'm not a good mum unless fill in the gap you know, Mm -hmm. unless my baby sleeps for X amount of hours or unless, you know, I'm going to be seen as a bad mum if my baby sits in this high chair for longer than 30 minutes. Like it's just so damaging, I think. And so having people like you who have done all this amazing research, thank you so much for that. Before we move on, I just want to, I was going to ask you about a particular parenting philosophy, but do you have any comments about that at all? Like the, the prescription methods? Yeah, no, I think you, you, I think you've covered it really well. I think it's just that, yeah, I think for some people, some people do find comfort in sort of this exact Mm. prescriptive approach. And there's, like you said, there's probably nothing wrong with that either, as long as they are, it's working for the baby as well. Yeah. As long as they're doing it and still watching, how does my baby respond? And so it could like having a bit of a sort of more defined schedule works for some, yeah. um, but it doesn't have to be that way, right? Mm. I think it has to, because if it causes stress and if your baby was in the high chair for 32 minutes, there's probably nothing bad is going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Oh my Totally. Goodness. I did the same with naps. I, oh. I somehow thought with my first that she had to be put to bed every two hours exactly. And I was watching the clock and it wasn't working. And then... Of course, that's not the case. <laughs> we don't it, have to watch them. And it just, I don't know, like, I don't know about you, but it comes back to yourself. And like, my whole day would be ruined if I didn't, quote unquote, nail the naps. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I'm always like, oh my God, she's up like, you know, 15 minutes earlier than she should be. Oh my God, what did I do wrong? Did I do something wrong? Did I, maybe I didn't set the temperature right in the room or like, you know, it always came back to me. And I just, um, I just want to say to the listeners, like so much compassion and empathy to you if you are going through this right now. And if it doesn't feel good to you, and as you say, like if it doesn't, if you're not getting a positive response from your child, maybe this is your opportunity to explore, as you say, around that optimal nurturing environment 
pick something else, experiment. What does that look like for you? And it's okay to try and say, I'm going to try something different because this is not working for me anymore. Big love to everyone (laughs) because I know it's so, so hard. On this kind of frame, there's like different philosophies out there in terms of parenting style. And you've kind of touched on it a little bit in terms of like kind of straddling that kind of like exterior around that optimal nurturing environment. There's something called the RIE philosophy. Can you, I guess, talk to us a little bit about that? I see that kind of thrown around a lot. What is it? Is it science-based principles? Like how does that, how does that all work? Is that on the perimeter? Is it in the middle? Yeah, it's um, it's an example that I kind of love because Rai, um, as a philosophy, influenced me greatly as a mom. It was something I started reading about when I had my first baby. And so it stands for the abbreviation, stands for Resources for Infant Educarers. So not educators, but educarers, which was the term coined by Magda Gerber, who started the approach. Yeah. So she sort of combined educating with caring. And um, so the the core of the philosophy is respect for children and um, sort of, yeah, like I think respect for children really is at the core. Mm-hmm. And it's and and it's something that I embraced right away without needing to see any science um, when my even before my first child was born, I felt like that was just something that I could, you know, fully agree with. Um, but then um, now, I think in the last 10 or so years, this philosophy has become a lot more well known. Mm-hmm. But what sometimes happens is that it's known, it becomes known not for really what it is at its core and the heart of it, but for some of the techniques, like the very specific things that sometimes become attached to it, whether they're actually part of it or not. And so one of the things that um, is recommended in this with this approach is um, letting babies move freely a lot. So putting them on the floor on their back uh, before they can even before they can roll and then letting them explore the environment. And so but sometimes you would hear, you know, someone would say, well, they, they just say, you just got to leave your baby on the floor. Like that's what the philosophy is about. And that's, okay. of course, not it. Yeah. So um, the, the core there is um, allowing babies to explore and to move freely. And that is supported by science. But the idea of just putting baby on the floor and not doing any tummy time or not allowing any other position, of course, wouldn't be science-based. But that's not what... the philosophy is really about Mm -hmm. and so I think that sort of is a good example of where we need to look at sort of if if we look at an approach to baby care that straddles that optimal nurturing environment for one it's important to separate what is actually the core of the approach and what is science-based and what is kind of fluff um, Mm -hmm. that's not even potentially part of it or maybe is part of it but is not that important and so it doesn't really matter if we take that or we don't take it and I've heard of someone say that they're a parenting advice magpie that they take they take what works and then leave what doesn't and you know I thought (laughs) I think that's maybe maybe that's a good one and I think I was I was a magpie when it came to parenting advice as well (laughs) 
I really love that philosophy, a parenting magpie. I think I might actually write that down and include that in our <laughs> discussions <laughs> with our new families because I, I think that's kind of, that is essentially what we always do as doulas when we're talking about, you know, postpartum planning and things like that. We touch on parenting philosophies and things like that. And my number one piece of advice is just experiment. You know, as you say, take what you like, take what you don't like and shelve that. You might not like it right now, um, but it might be part of the toolkit later. Like you just don't know. But to your point around people taking things and again it's that cherry picking thing of like oh you just put your baby on the ground and then you know walk away like I can just like no that is not what is happening here people it's just that whole misinformation and misunderstanding as well and I think you know in some instances a bit of ignorance around what is actually going on here yeah definitely we I've got one last question Oh no, I've got two more questions before we do our <laughs> before we do our rapid fire. I wanted to ask, so baby ecology outlines 10 universal elements of a nurturing environment for babies. Can you share a few of these elements and I guess explain why they are essential for development? And this is kind of like, as you say, regardless of parenting philosophies or cultural backgrounds, like what are the core foundations that you found? Yeah. So, you know, I imagine that optimal nurturing environment, like a circle. And if you imagine it like separated into three kind of pie slices, Mm -hmm. and I would say, so one of them would be sleep, another would be feeding, and another would be play. And then, but in the middle, we have sort of a core. And so if we say, look at the sleep slice of the pie, there are certain elements that we need regardless of how we tackle sleep in our family. So every baby would need a safe place to sleep. And that what that looks like might look different um, from one family to another, but it needs to be safe and soothing. Um, and, 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 and there's a number of ways of how we can achieve that. Um, and so what I did in my book is I looked at the different ways at different. So first I looked at what science tells us about what is safe, what is soothing for babies, what is consistent. Um, and then I sort of looked at how might we, uh, how might that look like in different families? So, uh, so that the reader can pick um, and try for size, just like you said, the approach that speaks to them and then perhaps try something else. And I also talked about the signs that maybe if what you're doing isn't working and it's time to go back to sort of that, the, the, the different choices. Um, um, another um, kind of part, another building block of the the sleep uh, um, part is um, responsive and consistent care. And that's something that every baby needs, but again, it might look different for different families. Um, then say, if we look at the the sleep part of that pie, then uh, what's important there, uh, or at the, sorry, I'm going to rewind back at the play part um um the play part um something that's quite important for all babies is that uh, being able to explore and learn freely and again that's something that looks different and can can take many many different shapes and forms but i talk about how how babies learn and what they need and then 
there's many, many ways that we, um, we can provide that or give them that opportunity um, to have that. But what's really, so that's, so each of those three sections has three different build, three building blocks, but that amounts to nine Mm -hmm. uh, building blocks in total. The main, the main building block is right in the middle and that's our love and our care. And I think that's just something that is so, so very important and it sort of radiates into all of them um, Mm -hmm. and creates that true foundation that I think if we ask any expectant or new parent, like what's at the core, um, what do you want to be or what is is at the core of your parenting? I think all of us would have the same answer and it's love. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. I love that. This last question, I think probably feeds into our rapid fire. And I think we might've touched on this in um, our previous episode, but for parents who are trying to navigate this landscape, like it is so overwhelming. And I was actually talking to a family the other day and they were just saying how we were doing a postpartum planning session. And they said, you know, one of the reasons why we we are doing this is because there's just so much information out there and they're just completely and utterly overwhelmed and they're like I we just we just don't even know where to start like (laughs) so we're coming to you because you know very similar to you you've read the research and it's like you've put it in this kind of beautiful book form and everything like that Uh, obviously apart from your book, which I think is amazing, are there any other pieces of advice that you would give to parents who are trying to navigate this kind of really quite extensive parenting space? Yeah, I think, you know, my best piece of advice there would be to, when you have a question and you don't know, and it feels overwhelming and it feels like a lot, you know, and we start Googling and, just mm. so much information, just as literally at our fingertips that it's too much. I think one advice I would have is to pause and take a moment to think, what am I missing? Like, do I need here more information, mm-hmm. science-based information? And then, so maybe, you know, if it's more of a medical question, of course, that would be a question for the baby's doctor or the the, the family doctor. If it's more of a science kind of development question, maybe there's some reading to be done. But also maybe is what I'm missing not necessarily information, but more observing my own child or myself and sort of seeing what they need in that moment. So so maybe what we need is that kind of pause and being with our kids without much expectation placed on them and on ourselves just so that we can make that best choice out of the information we maybe already have. We just need that little bit of, inner knowledge, that intuition to pick the one we need. And then, you know, the third part is sometimes what we need is actually a little bit of self-care or just a little bit of time for ourselves to just get that bandwidth back to actually be able to tell what is it that we need in the moment. And I think that's also just so important for parents to just sometimes think, and maybe, maybe it's, maybe I just need a little bit of time. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I think that is such wonderful advice because yeah, the moments that I have where it's just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, everything's chaotic. Everything's chaotic. I can't make a decision. I can't make a decision. And then you knee jerk and you go bang like this and you're like, okay, yep, that's what we're doing. Okay, great. And you feel good in the moment because you're like, yep, made the decision. 
cross it off the that ever <laughs> ever extensive list mm. of life but then in hindsight you go oh hold on a minute hold on that's actually not what we need right now to me it's kind of very similar to me knee jerking and going i'm just going to run to the shops and get something for dinner but instead i probably already have 95% of the ingredients at home already and i just need to stop and pause and <laughs> and take stock of what's in the pantry first and they go oh I didn't have to leave the house and like tackle the shops and everything I actually have everything I need right here yeah um (laughs) I I love that Anya I love um that so I'm actually going to take that because in our rapid fire we talk about what is your top tip for mums I'm actually going to take that because I think that is beautiful and I like so beautifully neatly packed and I think it answers everything that I would um hope for (laughs) Do you have any other kind of go-to resources or anything like that? Yeah, you know, sort of apart from my own book, which like I said, I wrote because I I couldn't find a a book like that, but I have Mm. several very favorite books that I would recommend for uh, parents of children of any age. Yeah, Um, And so one of them would be a book called Becoming the Parents You Want to Be. And it's just such a such a wonderful book. I love it. And then the other two books would be Brain Body Parenting mm-hmm. and The Whole Brain Child. So I just I love those three books so much. Uh, <laughs> you, you actually just brought brought up um, something by the author of um, The Whole Brain Child just earlier yes. in the conversation. I by love Dan Siegel. Yeah. Dan Siegel. Oh my god, it's goodness. such a great yeah. <laughs> And I find I, I I turn back to the ideas in this book quite often um, yes. as my kids grow. So it's just, it's a much loved resource in our family. Absolutely. I think I've spoken previously on the podcast where I will, I will have had some experience with my daughter that day and it's a tough one and I'm like far out. What do I do? And I literally like cooking dinner, I'll go to the bookshelf, I'll grab a whole brainchild, you know, I'll be, you know, stirring the chicken stew and I'll be reading. I'm like, okay, what would Dan do? (laughs) You know, like what am I going to learn from Dan today? I absolutely love that book. And yes, it is something that I go back to time and time again. And the other one that I go back to um, time and time again, and I want to get the title right, it's by, um, have you heard of the author Steve Bidolf? He is actually Australian and he's written an amazing book called Raising Girls and very similar to how Dan writes in the sense that you know, particular chapters are targeted towards particular age groups. Every single time my daughter turns, has her birthday, I go back to that, the next chapter of where we're at. And actually that's great. has just turned six. So I need to grab that book off the shelf and go, (laughs) okay, we're at six. What are we up to? What are we doing? What are the things that we need to be focusing on? Um, That's great. I'll add that to my list. I I haven't read it yet. He's got, um, so he's got a book, Raising Boys, and he did that one first, I think, and then he did Raising Girls, and it's just oh, so good. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. I will my um, pleasure. I put it on my list. And then I guess we did ask this last time, but I'm going to ask you again because it might have changed, but what do you keep on your bedside table right now? Oh, you know, that's a good question, right? Usually the piles of books, uh, but yeah. right now it's just my toddler's little cars that are always there. 
Um, but because okay. we just had, um, it's just the start of our school year here. And so I haven't had time to read, but I'm hoping that that will change soon. <laughs> Excellent. I, I've actually been speaking to a lot of mums recently and they've been saying how they're trying to make more time and space for reading, which I think is really beautiful because, you know, reading just takes you to another place and, it's so easy to do, I think. Well, to sit down with a book, so but you need to have time and space to do it, obviously. But it's yeah. not one of those things where you've got to like cart yourself off anywhere. You can just sit and be where you are for 10 minutes and, and have that space. Thank you so much, Anya. This has been so wonderful to chat with you again. It was so insightful. I'm in awe that you have spent 10 years reading through the research. It's almost like two PhDs in one. Um, That's what it so, felt like. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. That was must have been such, such an arduous but such a rewarding experience as well. Um, so for all of those out there, your book is Baby Ecology, where can we get it? Where can we learn more about you and, and access further information? Yeah, my book is available on Amazon and everywhere that uh, books are sold. can also be always purchased um, through a local bookstore or asked for at a, at a library. Always, always a great option. And then um, I have a website, kidecology.com, where there's more information about my book and some of my articles and also a way to connect with me, which I, I, I love it when um, readers get in touch. I love that. Thank you so much for your time and we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.